Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. We are without Steve Krupa today. Steve took the week off, but I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Robert Mittendorf, who is a partner at Norwest Venture Partners, but more directly connected to this podcast. He is the co-chair of this year's Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on November 30th in Boston. This is Robert's third year leading the conference. He was our chair first in 2015. He paired up with Bill Geary in 2016 to serve as co-chair because it actually is quite a bit of work. And he and Bill are uh, continuing to lead this effort in 2017, and they've done a fantastic job. I'm going to talk to Robert more uh, generally about digital health. We'll uh, reference the conference here and there. But uh, Robert's a fascinating guy and uh, one of the real, I think, uh, big thinkers in digital health. And we're so pleased to have both he and Bill Gary, who's a fantastic VC in his own right, leading this event. And uh, Robert will give a a short pitch for the conference at the end. But uh, more importantly, I hope you enjoy his thoughts uh, about the question of whether digital health investing is dead. And uh, you may have an idea of how he feels about that. But more uh, more importantly, he'll get into what areas excite him. He, in addition to being a venture capitalist, is a practicing physician. He still uh, still works in the ER once a month. So he has a direct line to, uh, to other physicians and to the healthcare industry overall, the healthcare provider industry overall. So he brings a really terrific perspective. Also, We'll have a couple of great announcements uh, in the podcast, but I'm uh, pleased to uh, give our Breaking Health podcast listeners a bit of a sneak peek or, or a little bit of inside information as to two additions to the agenda. We'll start uh, marketing them very shortly, but we're pre- pleased to have Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of GE, as a keynote opener of the, uh, of the conference. He'll be interviewed by Bill Geary. And we're also going to uh, welcome Troy Brennan, Dr. Troy Brennan, who is Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of CVS. So these are, of course, two of the, the biggest newsmakers in digital healthcare and healthcare overall, and we're uh, very happy to have them both on our stage. So I don't say this uh, lightly. I think if you are interested in this program, I ask you to register very soon. Uh, these, this event has sold out the past two years, as Robert indicates in the podcast. The venue is small, and it's small for a reason. We want to make sure that the uh, the conversations are not drowned out. We want to make sure that uh, the right people are, are in the room. We don't want this to be one of those conferences that used to be good. We want it to be continuously good. We want to keep the size small and intimate and keep the conversations uh, to be important and, uh, and relevant and exciting too. So we think we've accomplished that. I'm fairly confident we have. In fact, I know we have. And I ask you again to go to healthag.com. That's the word health followed by letters egy.com to check out the agenda and judge for yourself. And uh, 
very happy again to have Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of GE, and Dr. Troy Brennan, Executive Vice President and CEMO of CVS on stage. They've uh, both got a lot to say, and those in attendance will hear it. So with uh, without any further delay, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Robert Mittendorf, co-chair of the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit and partner at Norwest Venture Partners. Well, Robert Mittendorf, welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Tom, thanks for inviting me. I think you were our first guest ever on the podcast, and uh, here you are for, for round number three, so I, I admire your uh, stamina. You've done a great job with it. It's been exciting to uh, listen to many of your other interviews. Great. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it as well. So you're a, a, a doctor, an MD, and a, and a VC, so you're nu- uniquely qualified, I think, to uh, render judgment on this. It was talked about a month or two ago about the, the death of digital health. Um, I think it was more of a headline than anything else, but... What is your take on uh, on that position that perhaps we're at a point where digital health investing has gone too far? Well, I would say, uh, you know, the news of that untimely demise has been uh, probably grossly exaggerated <laughs> and for reasons that you already described. Um, I'm obviously very bullish on digital health, not because I'm an investor in digital health, because I also invest in medical devices and diagnostics and healthcare services but because I see the true promise, but also the true um, delivery of value that the combination of technologies and digital health has brought to to the healthcare universe. So I I think we are at a place where we are starting to see the sobering of investment and real returns happen, and we can talk more about those. Um, You know, if you think about where we are in the hype cycle, we are uh, starting to get a little bit more realistic about where technology can add value and where it was um, overhyped. And this is true of all kinds of fields. Um, AR and VR are going through this right now as well. It doesn't mean those technologies are going to be uh, useless. They're just going to be applied in certain ways that uh, may not meet the hype of the original uh, invention. I think that the paths are so much clearer in other uh, meta- in other specialties, other sectors, including medical devices. You know who the strategics are. You know who the physicians are. I mean, the the... the the field is just so wide open in, in digital health. And it, it just struck me as funny because I was listening to the older podcast, the first one you did. And I think the theme of that was, oh, digital health has finally reached a point of maturation. We're finally there. And two years later, here we are talking about, okay, we're not there anymore. It's dead. So uh, I agree with you 100%. And I, and I think, you know, you can look at it as, uh, look at its health as to the adoption, how it's, how much, uh, how it's finding its way into healthcare delivery. But and I'd like to do that in a moment, but let's focus sort of more on the, the, the metrics that, uh, that VCs like to use to, to measure success, uh, which would be exits and, and IPOs and, and M&As. Uh, we are see, seeing some S1s and we are seeing some companies out there on the public markets that are doing quite well. Absolutely. Before I get to some of those, I do want to, some of the other metrics we look at, um, if you look at whatever analysts you want to talk to about this, um, digital health funding um, is, is you know, somewhere in the range of four to six billion, uh, and it has been for a couple of years. You know, Rock Health, I think, said that we declined 8% year over year. 
but it was a doubling from uh, I think 2013 or 2014 until 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the short, and, and that depends on the definition of, of, of what companies you include in, in the digital health space. But you're also seeing north of two to 250 of these companies funded a year, and uh, and that's also been rising. So I think last year was the largest, depending on your definition again, the largest number of companies funded. Um, and we're on track this year for uh, about the same number. So uh, <clears throat> there are people out there that are deploying capital um, and doing their best to deploy it in a way that will uh, drive financial as well as um, uh, you know, clinical value. So I think that metric is important. There is money going into the space. Now, I think the thesis around the death of digital health was that, well, we haven't seen exits <clears throat> that, that, uh, that are commensurate with this level of investment. Mm-hmm. As, you know, as an example, if you put $4 billion in and you want to get an average 2 to 3x out, assuming lots of that is in late-stage investments, then you'd want to see $8 billion in, in uh, you know, uh, value, which, which would not even include the step-up from um, you know, the percent ownership step-up in an IPO. So we certainly are behind in exits, but that doesn't mean that the field is dead. In fact, I think I'll give you some examples. I think there are some real examples that are easily available for all of us to look at right now that prove the value of digital health uh, companies that went public. So we are we are seeing some some S ones filing and, and we're seeing some companies, including one of yours, thankfully, uh, doing quite well on the public market. Can you give us a, an update on uh, on iRhythm? Absolutely. So I think iRhythm is a great example of a digital health company that has created enormous clinical value and as a result enormous economic value. <clears throat> so this, if you recall, is a company that uh, came out of uh, Stanford, uh, came out of a program they have there uh, where physicians and entrepreneurs interact, and they developed um, a patch that acquires 11 to 14 days of uh, ECG data, mm-hmm. single lead ECG data that records it. Um, and then that data, most uh, very importantly, is uh, analyzed in the cloud with software that reads that Um, That typically could take four to eight hours for a single well-trained human. Um, Now that's down to minutes uh, where a a technician or a physician will overread that uh, computer uh, read read to produce a report that is then deployed to the physician. And what's interesting is that there was business model innovation at iRhythm. iRhythm actually serves as a provider uh, to health systems. Think of it as like a consult of a health service. Um, they submit directly to insurers to get paid. Um, they are not reliant upon the hospital purchasing um, their device. In, in many cases, they get reimbursed directly and then provide the report to the health system. And uh, they rely significantly on uh, what we consider in digital health um, a key uh, you know, innovative technology, which is machine learning. Uh, they do a huge amount of machine learning to allow software to expand the leverage of human labor in mm. reading these signals. So if you look at the financial metrics of iRhythm, they are an, an obvious uh, bellwether here in digital health. Today, they're trading well north of a billion on uh, 2017 revenue that's projected. I think they're, um, they're, the consensus estimates are 94 to 97 million for this year, um, which is about a 50% increase over last year's revenue. What's also impressive is that this company, as I said, is a technology-enabled service. Their margins are uh, approaching or exceeding 70% gross margins, um, which makes them look like uh, a mature software company, um, even though they have a small hardware component with the patch and they have some human labor. 
overreading uh, every single study performed. So it's, an, it's a great example of how automation mm-hmm. combined with mobility, combined with signal, um, signal acquisition and analysis um, is packaged together in a service consumed by physicians and, uh, and loved by patients to produce diagnostic outcomes that are valuable in the current market. We can go into that as well, why, why they so, are, are so valuable clinically. But this is a real digital health company. It's trading at north of 10, I think today, more, more, like, something like 12 times uh, 2017 revenue. So do you, does that uh, company allow you to create boxes that you need to check when assessing new investments? Is this a formula that you want to see in future investments, or is this just unique to the algorithm story and, and other investments you're seeing in the space have their own qualities that you need to sort of I guess, build a, understand the parameters and, and see the opportunities for success? You know, that is a great question. I think uh, there is absolutely a set of lessons learned by iRhythm that is directly applicable to the broader digital health space, especially the section of digital health that is involved in the diagnosis or treatment of existing disease. Um, so let me, I can give you, if you like, some examples of lessons learned there. Sure. So let's start with the technology. Um, clearly, technology that's IP protected in the case of iRhythm um, that has some proprietary aspects of it creates a wall. We all look for that in any kind of company we look at. Um, but beyond that, the the impetus and the thesis here in terms of how this company would be successful was built around leveraging human labor with automation, which we can come back to. But what they did is in the early days, they would acquire these 11 to 14 days of data. And I'll, I'll tell you why that's important. And they built over a number of years using, uh, I think, north of half a million patients now, patient signal uh, records. They built software to pre-read these signals and develop presumptive tagging and diagnoses. So, for example, over a 14-day period, if a patient has supraventricular tachycardia uh, for 30 seconds or more, or if you see three beats of ventricular tachycardia, which is a, a, you know, a, a, a rhythm that can cause um, you know, sudden death, or if you see atrial fibrillation, the signal analysis performed by the computer is, is uh, you know, astounding. And, <clears throat> and the corner cases of finding those signals allows the human to spend less time doing that and more time overreading, which means that their, their uh, effective uh, throughput goes up by one, in, in this case, two orders of magnitude. Um, so that was the next step, which is can automation drive uh, margin? And, and they've cl- clearly shown that in the early days with margins, you know, much lower than where they are today. And now mm-hmm. they're approaching medical device margins. The third innovation for them was business, uh, was business model innovation. And I think this one is very instructive. It's one that Almada has also used, one of our other portfolio companies. But um, instead of selling a device to a provider for deployment, what these companies have utilized is the ability to be treated as a health services provider in their own right. So iRhythm is, in effect, a provider of cardiac services, where, um, just like Genomic hmm. Health is, where you, you write a prescription for their device, you slap it on the patient, and iRhythm is seeking reimbursement directly from the payer. They're not selling a device, say, for example, um, a uh, coronary stent 
to a patient, uh, to, to a hospital for use in a patient, they are uh, being reimbursed directly. And to do that, it's not simple. It's not simple at all. That business model innovation requires that you convince payers that you as a health service or a provider in their network should get reimbursed for this test at this rate. That contracting requires a number of key things, most importantly, clinical data. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that's the last part here, which is if you want to seek reimbursement, clearly you need to be FDA cleared, et cetera. Yeah, that's no small uh, that's, that's no small thing. <laughs> On the medical device side, obviously, the reimbursement, I think, is becoming more of an issue than, than the FDA, getting, getting those, uh, those codes from, uh, from the societies and, and the uh, reimbursements from the insurers. Um, looking at, looking just bring, I brought up the FDA. The FDA is taking a keener interest in digital health, establishing some really intriguing programs. Does that make your job as an investor easier? because you have sort of a groundwork, ground rules to, to, to play by, or is it, uh, is it confining and more difficult? We have gone from an era where, um, a melancholic era, if you will, to under Commissioner Gottlieb, probably the most well thought out uh, approach to digital health we have seen. Um, I, I'm incredibly impressed by Commissioner Gottlieb's approach to digital health. He has blogged about it. He has talked about their program to uh, pre-certify certain types of digital health interventions that are not high risk, that do not require FDA review or may not require FDA review. He's outlined a roadmap. He obviously has developed their program, which uh, Apple, Google, uh, Samsung, and others are in. Very forward thinking. And I, I honestly believe his background, um, the, the background that he brought to the job, really informs that perspective, which, which is a distinction um, from, from his predecessor. Hey, everyone. This is Tom. Excuse this interruption. But I do want to remind our Breaking Health podcast community that we are giving you the gift of savings. Just type in BeHealth when you register to attend the Digital Health Innovation Summit. It's happening on November 30th in Boston, and you will save yourself a little bit of money. With the news that uh, Jeff Immelt and Troy Brennan are speaking at the conference, I, I suggest to you that you act quickly. So, again, use Be Health when you register, and we'll see you there on November 30th at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Now back to this conversation. So are you now using those FDA pathways as part of your, uh, your decisions when, when looking at digital health, or are you looking, at, are you looking for companies that will stream into that, uh, into that process, or are you potentially looking for companies that perhaps won't? I, you know, it's a great question. I think it depends on what we're looking at. So the barrier to entry that the FDA clearance or approval in the case of a PMA um, gives you is, is immense. The investment is also immense, usually. Um, for 510K, obviously less so. Um, the time required, et cetera. So it, it really depends on what you're trying to do. If what you're trying to do requires that moat um, for other reasons, then it's worthy of going after it. If what you're trying to do may not require that and it's overhead, well, Commissioner Gottlieb is starting to remove that overhead that was not logical in application to some of these uh, interventions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he makes very clear in his blog and in guidance that, uh, you know, you do not need likely FDA review for a number of the hundreds of thousands of apps that are out there that may actually help a patient self-manage their disease. There was a debate around this before. Um, you may not need some uh, clearances for uh, aspects of clinical decision support. And if you do, you may be able to collect data post 
uh, clearance, if it's a simpler clearance, that can be used by the FDA. Um, so I think, I think this whole uh, field has changed as a result of him. I also think we saw um, large movements forward with the, the uh, Cures Act, which um, was, was, a, was a, a bit of a big bonus for uh, digital health in, in a similar way. How outstanding is that you can get guidance from the FDA commissioner on his blog? It's pretty great. It's amazing. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air, I have to say. Absolutely. Especially for this field. And another area where we're seeing changes, huge changes, uh, is on the strategic side, which ultimately could allow for M&A of some of these digital startups, I suppose, and, present, and presenting other exiting opportunities for you. We're seeing the, the CVS, Aetna talks, uh, Amazon's move. I mean, what, do, what is your take about uh, what is your take of all the changes higher up that are going on and and is that making your investment decisions more difficult because you don't know how this what the landscape might look like in three or four years yes and no i think i think they're they're all unified if you look at the cvs aetna acquisition if you look at amazon's movements if you look at google in many ways they are all um subsets of a theme which is the rise of the consumer the consumer has become now a key decision maker in what care is received, who's paying for it, the consumer's paying for more of their care, what they expect from the system, what they demand from it. And I think that is driving a number of strategic um, moves at, in big companies and in small companies. So, um, you know, <clears throat> I, think, I think in the case of CVS Aetna, there's a, the, we could talk for a couple of hours on, on the value of that. Um, uh, merger and the, um, the, the the complexity that will be uh, you know uh, uh, seen there in, in, in terms of that merger, but also the myriad of services and and uh, and the power that the, that that combined organization will have. If you look at Amazon and their movements in the pharmacy space, um, you see real efforts here. And I think later this month they're going to have a public announcement about what they're doing. I clearly don't have insider information, but I have a pretty good understanding of where I think they're going to go. Uh, and I think they are, they are going to work on disrupting the, um, uh, the pharmacy experience for a number of, of, of us out here, a number of us consumers. And those two are related, aren't they? I mean, Amazon's disruption of the pharmacy, <laughs> pharmacy business has to have CVS looking for options. That's absolutely correct. I think um, the the approach that Amazon might take is um, is instructive to understanding the CVS Aetna merger. It's hard to imagine that there wasn't some even small influence there um, when a company the size of Amazon starts applying for and receiving wholesale uh, pharmacy distribution licenses <laughs> in a number of states. And you can imagine that the next step would be uh, retail pharmacy licenses, which take about six months, um, after a, 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 a kind of an amazing acquisition of a bricks and mortar food business, Whole Foods, you can start to understand that there might be a much larger strategy here in play to uh, really change how the supply chain in uh, pharmaceuticals and pharmacy works in the United States. And this is an, our, our opportunity for a, a shameless plug. We will have Dr. Troy Brennan, the CM, CMO of CVS, uh, speaking at Digital Health Innovation Summit, which is happening on November 30th in Boston. That's a pretty good get, right? That's amazing. I, I mean, <laughs> I've been privileged to be part of it for a number of years. We have an amazing lineup this year. Um, each year, uh, the lineup you know, just fascinates me with the, the level of quality we get, um, uh, including uh, individuals like... Uh, uh, Troy, we have um, 
uh, you know, the former CEO of GE, Jeff Immelt, will be there. We have uh, Karen DeSalvo, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, um, <clears throat> who was Assistant Secretary of Health as well as the health care teaser for Obama. I uh, sorry for uh, for uh, Obama. And we have um, <laughs> Deborah DeSanzo, who uh, was formerly uh, CEO of Philips Healthcare, who is um, uh, now running the IBM Watson business, among many others. It's going to be an amazing, uh, amazing conference. No, it's going to be. It is, and you guys, you and Bill, Gary, have done a fantastic job putting this together. Uh, I do want to get into into the conference a bit more, but let's let's just talk about how your the areas that interest you have sort of influenced the creation of, of this agenda. I know you and I have talked offline and through the planning calls of the digital for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit about the role of AI, and we talked about machine learning a bit more. We'll have a conversation about that, a very high profile one at, profile one at lunch. But what is your your assessment of that field? What, how much, what, how will that impact healthcare going forward? Not even digital health, healthcare going forward. Yeah. So I, I've spent considerable time, um, in what we now call AI and machine learning from my graduate school days, um, where I was actually coding neural networks in MATLAB and C++, um, to today where I really get to, to listen to amazing entrepreneurs pitch their ideas, um, utilizing these technologies. I would say that, um, <clears throat> We're at the very beginning of where AI will, um, will take us in healthcare. Um, we are, I am incredibly bullish on how automation will uh, streamline healthcare, will improve um, safety, will improve throughput, and possibly even improve efficacy um, in a variety of areas, from uh, the diagnosis of disease to the treatment to um, helping with the, the life sciences tools aspects of, uh, of healthcare. So there are a number of opportunities for AI and there are a number of challenges. Um, I'll, I'll outline the opportunity, I think the central opportunity, if I were to talk about the rise of the consumer as one of the other areas, the central opportunity here is the rise of automation. And, and in healthcare, I'm, I'm going to consider the rise of semi-automation. Mm-hmm. Um, so companies like iRhythm, which do not eliminate human labor, they just scale it massively. As an example, in, in healthcare, we will see the massive scaling of radiology diagnostic labor through the usage of machine learning in pre-reading, pre-tagging, and then ultimately pre-diagnosing um, uh, imagery, whether it's a CT, an X-ray, an MRI, um, a PET scan, et cetera. This kind of automation is going to ultimately lead to lower cost tests. In the, in the short term, you're going to see companies capture margin through automation. In the longer term, that's going to allow us to have tests that don't cost as much, that are equally accurate, or maybe even more accurate than the tests we have today. Fascinating. And, and, the, and the session we'll have at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit will uh, we'll certainly cover some of this. It's entitled, it's titled, How Will Machine Learning and AI Impact Healthcare Labor? And uh, we'll have uh, Doctors Atul Boot and Zach Gohani there, uh, sort of a little back and forth. So that, that should be a, another great part of the day. What other, uh, what other areas are you looking at in, uh, in digital health that have you most interested? So certainly AI, we talked about that. I think the, um, we have spent a lot of time in genomics for a variety of reasons. We haven't gotten to an investment there. There's a lot of interesting um, innovation happening in genomics on the consumer side as well as where I'm um, you know, more bullish on the physician side, mm-hmm. whether it's with the actual um, technology of, of scaling these genomics tests to, um, to the uh, interpretation of these tests and the delivery of reports. Um, I think another area, <clears throat> just to go back to the rise of the consumer, that um, I, I think is going to be uh, very interesting, and it's probably – it's less sexy than high-tech robotics or um, uh, AI, but it's 
I think it's incredibly important, and that is the area of consumer payments in healthcare. So uh, as we move <clears throat> to high deductible plans where 50% of the U.S. workforce has a, a high deductible plan with a deductible of over 1000 bucks, I believe now, um, and as we go to uh, these high deductible plans um, where hospital revenue um, is now, instead of 5% in the hands of patients, could be 20%, um, and these hospital health systems have operating margins of 5%, you're in a situation where if a patient pays half their bill, what they owe on average, which is kind of the norm, maybe even lower, versus a payer paying 95 cents of that bill, um, you en enter a situation where if you don't help patients manage their financial health, health when they enter the hospital or the clinic, you, you will do them a disservice as well as uh, you will do yourself as a provider a disservice. And so I'm actually incredibly enthusiastic about the innovation happening in the consumer engagement um, in, in managing patient financial health, um, which, is, which has the dual uh, benefit of helping patients deal with mortgage size bills now rather than the like car payment when they go to the hospital. These bills are the size of a mortgage. And hospitals collect, or, or sorry, hospitals uh, get those funds that they've earned through their, um, through their work. And so I think, um, I think that's an exciting area and there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Where is the innovation in that space? Is it, is it just engaging the, the, the patients? Uh, is it helping them handle these payments? Is it, I don't know, coming up with financing systems? And is it, uh, are they uh, digital technology components that are making all that possible? Or is it more of a, a people kind of business, more of a, I don't know, a, a social, uh, a, a, a person who maybe is a social worker to help counsel and to help people understand their their obligations and their and their payments to healthcare providers. So it's all of that. Um, mm -hmm. It is a uh, it's a combination of of technologies that um, are are unique to healthcare, along with technologies that came out of the consumer space, as well as um, uh, you know the, the the leveraging of human labor again, uh, as you described. Um, in this case, not social workers, but individuals trained in helping patients manage their financial responsibility. So I would say as an example, if you, if you think about um, a bill uh, that you get at a hospital now, and I have recent ones for urgent care for um, my, my little one, um, if, you, if, you, uh, if you think about getting a bill for 1200 bucks, in, in many US households, that, that's not something that's easily financeable, um, uh, you know, thrown on a credit card for many individuals. It's something that they would typically want to plan out. Sure. Um, beyond that, uh, we all know that the pricing of services is, is still very opaque. So when I talk about patient financial health, it starts at the consideration of where you should go for care, whether you should seek that care at all, if it's an elective, whether you should delay it, um, whether you should start saving for that care in advance, um, whether you can uh, pay a portion of that up front, um, and then which which consumers of healthcare services are deserving from the health system's perspective of financial options. For example, um, if, if you're in a typical health system, um, you're probably not, not thinking about um, this in, in, in the way that, that one might hope one would. Um, I, I, when I get that $1,200 bill, I probably shouldn't be given financing options by the hospital. Why mm -hmm. is that? Because um, I have credit cards. I can finance it if I want. I can pay the, the, the bill. But if, I, if there were a, an, a, a mother of three in Silicon Valley making $80,000 a year, um, that person should probably be given financing options. 
And, and so if you were to rationalize or ration the financing that a health system would give its patients, um, it'd probably look different than, say, partners, where at the Mass General, I believe anyone can get um, uh, you know, uh, a financing uh, period of, of quite some length. So I think as we start to more smartly or intelligently manage the risk um, as patients um, take over these bills, I think we'll have sophisticated analytics. We do have this today, and that's growing. Um, and then we'll have the ability of health systems to help these patients uh, manage their responsibility in, in paying these bills that, uh, that have resulted from their care. Fascinating. No, and that's going to be a growing need. No, no matter what happens at the Washington level, you feel that that's going to be necessary as folks take on more of their financial uh, burden. What about, um, you mentioned the, the genomics uh, test being used in the physician's office. What, what, what are you seeing there? I mean, we're, we're obviously hear, hear a lot about 23andMe and Ancestry, and it's amazing how those kind of conversations just pop up now at, at, uh, at work where people are disappointed with choosing one test over the other. I mean, they really become part of everyday conversation having those, those tests done. I haven't done that yet. But what about in the, in the, uh, in the doctor's offices? How, what, what's the penetration been like there? Well, I think these are both consumer-facing, obviously. Um, they have businesses. Both of them have businesses articulated um, publicly. And, and you know, I had the privilege of taking a look at the S1 for Ancestry, um, where they have, um, they, they have uh, strategies that do involve pharma, uh, you know, from a drug development perspective. But on the doctor's side, I think that genomics is, um, really has two purposes. It's in the targeting of therapies, which I'm most interested, especially in oncology. And it's the screening of big problems that could come, which I think is best exemplified in um, the NIPT space, in the prenatal testing space, mm -hmm. and in some of the screening for partners that might be getting pregnant. But I think more importantly, in the evaluation of a specific fetus in a specific mom uh, for, um, you know, trisomies and the long tail of other um, abnormalities that can occur. In oncology, we are uh, seeing amazing developments where um, we, are, we are really moving, and, and we've talked about this for years, but moving from treating a tumor using um, stage grade and histopathology to genomic precision medicine, genetic precision medicine on that tumor or samples from that tumor um, for targeted drug uh, therapy. And I think that that's the world that's coming. It's already here in many respects, but oncology is, you know, it's, is getting there. The, the challenge there is the same thing we have in AI for radiology. Physicians need to know that when they use a test to make a decision that affects a patient in a treatment realm, that someone has given them data and information, a clinical study that shows that that's a validated uh, approach. And that, what that means is that in the case of radiology, if the, if the computer is calling appendicitis, and, and that's probably not the best example because uh, some individuals are treating appendicitis now with antibiotics, but typically it's a surgical indication. If, if the CT indicates an appendicitis based on the uh, machine learnings uh, algorithms approach, and that appendix comes out, but it's not diseased, the trust in that technology will plummet. So therefore, there needs to be a validation study to show that, mm -hmm. that, that at, least it's, at least it would be read the same as a human. Maybe, maybe you don't need a study that shows whether, in fact, the appendix was diseased in the operating room, but you certainly need to compare it to a panel of reading radiologists. The same is true in genomics. So if I give you um, a, if I give you a recommendation on which uh, cancer therapy you should use on the genetic or the genomic makeup of this tumor, 
based on markers in that tumor, which might be different than if you followed the uh, criteria in an oncology pathway. Are you comfortable as a physician prescribing that therapy based on the molecular aspects of that tumor when a year or two ago you were using other less or non-molecular approaches to deciding on the therapy to give? That needs a validation study usually. Fascinating. And that, that data is being developed by companies like Gardent, for example. Um, they're doing an amazing job there in building up clinical data to prove that, in their case, cell-free DNA, um, and in other companies' cases, circulating tumor cells, can be used as a way of understanding whether a tumor has recurred and whether you should treat the patient as if they have recurrence, even though you don't have a solid tumor mass to point to. Amazing. Can't wait to, to follow that, that progress going forward. We're almost out of time. I know you need to go. Uh, we have hardly talked about the conference, but people can go to uh, healthag.com and check out the agenda. But real quick, I mean, if you're talking to, to someone in, a, in an elevator, what is, uh, what is your pitch for the conference? How do, you, uh, how do you describe it to folks and, and invite them to participate? Yeah, I mean, I have to say this is a labor of love for me, as you know. Um, uh, and, and it's a labor of love because it is a, it is a very, very impactful one-day conference with um, – you know, some activities the night before for uh, individuals involved in the conference. One-day conference packed full of people that are at the center of change in our health system. So if you look at some of the individuals we mentioned, these people are in the middle of, of the health system. They are, they are the doers. They are seeing, they are doing, they are influencing. Whether it's on the policy side, the leadership side of companies, strategic in the space, small companies, large companies, or on the customer, provider, or payer side, or other strategic. These are the individuals in the know. And I think we also have been privileged to have really great interviewers. So we, we really offer uh, people who attend the opportunity to see, see some real, uh, some real uh, facts and, and perspectives from these individuals in a, in a time, uh, you know, 30-minute segments that make sense. That is the content aspect of the conference. The other part, which is, which is, I think, equally important, is the ability to network with people that are really committed to the space and understand it in a deep way. And there's only, I think, you could tell me, I think we have 300 slots uh, confined to, to the space at the Mandarin, which is a beautiful space to have this conference at. Um, and that really is a forcing function for making sure that the people who register early um, obviously will get priority. We, we certainly reach out to individuals that we hope will attend, uh, and we've been fortunate that they have usually attended. We have a really uh, close-knit group of people that are really focused on this space because we see huge value. We've realized huge value in a case of like iRhythm, um, both financially and clinically. And so, uh, you know, I'll continue to do it. Um, I love it. I'm excited. It's November 30th at the Mandarin in Boston. I think we still have a couple of slots left. We're a couple of weeks out. Um, the agenda is baked. We've talked about a number of people. There's lots more people on the agenda that are equally impressive. And, uh, and I'm just super excited to be in Boston uh, again in the fall. Excellent. Well, we're, we're very pleased to have you lead this conference again. As you noted, it's sold out the last couple of years and, and is on pace to do so again. So I do hope people don't wait. And uh, I will let you go. Thanks for your time, Robert. And uh, we'll see you on November 30th in Boston. Tom, thanks for the opportunity. This is always fun. Well, that's a wrap. Robert Mittendorf, what can I say? Thank you so much for all the work you've put into this year's Digital Health Innovation Summit and, of course, years past. It's a pleasure to work with you. Look forward to working with you on future programs as well. And, uh, folks, this is no joke. This thing has sold out the last couple of years. Likely we'll sell it again. It's on pace to do so. So I wouldn't wait if I were you. 
go to healthogy.com. That's the word health, followed by letters egy.com. There you can check out the agenda. It includes our two editions, Jeff Immelt of GE and Troy Brennan, the Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President at CVS, both important folks in the field of healthcare, both people you want to hear from. So I advise you to be there, and please don't wait. And do use your Be Health code. Uh, we do want to reward our broadcast commu- uh, podcast community rather, and uh, save you a little bit of money. So type in Be Health when you're registering, and it'll knock a little bit off the price. So that's a wrap. Once again, if you uh, would help us out with the podcast, as always, we appreciate it. Do give us a ranking on iTunes. Do tell your friends. Uh, do shoot me an email. Let me know how we're doing. Tom at healthag.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. And of course, uh, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Breaking Health Podcast. If you're listening on a phone or an iPad, and I think most of you folks know how to do this, just push the subscribe button, two or three clicks, you're there. You'll have the, uh, the podcast sent each week to your listening device. That's a wrap, everyone. Again, November 30th in Boston. We hope to see you there. Go to healthage.com, check out the agenda, register, use your V-Health code, and we'll see you in Boston, my hometown.